This is one of those press conferences you never want to have to give in your community. And yet that's what police in Gilroy, California had to do. A gunman at a food festival there killed three people and wounded at least 15. I'm Rachel Martin along with Steve Inskeep and this is Up First from NPR News. Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, is out. The president announced that move on Twitter. The two had a tense relationship, and the president is replacing him with one of his strongest defenders in Congress. What does the new leadership mean for the intelligence agencies? And President Trump criticized Congressman Elijah Cummings on Twitter, calling his district a, quote, rodent-infested mess. It includes part of Baltimore, and residents are defending their city. What does the president's attack say about his re-election strategy for 2020? Stay with us, we'll give you the news you need to start your day. Support for Up First and the following message come from Honest, striving to make better for you products. When you choose an Honest beverage, money goes to fair trade certified suppliers to help support their communities. Visit honesttea.com slash podcast to learn more. Support also comes from Smile Direct Club. Straighten your teeth with custom-made clear aligners delivered to your door. For an at-home impression kit with rebate and $100 off aligners, go to smiledirectclub.com podcast with offer code UPFIRST. The Gilroy Garlic Festival is this annual tradition in Northern California that brings in thousands of people every year. There's a lot of food, there's music. It's the kind of summer event that is replayed in American towns across the country this time of year. This year, though, the festival in Gilroy turned into a crime scene. Yeah, police say they responded quickly to reports of gunfire on Sunday. Here is Gilroy Police Chief Scott Smithy. It's just uh, incredibly sad and disheartening that an event that is does so much good for our community uh, has to suffer from a tragedy like this. Police say the unidentified gunman killed three people and injured at least 15, and then police shot and killed the gunman. Reporter Erica Mahoney of member station KAZU is covering the story and joins us now. So, Erica, um, this this festival is huge, right? I used to live in Northern California. This is a big deal every year. Um, garlic is a big crop in Gilroy, and so they make a big party out of it. Tons of families come. I mean, what can you what can you tell us about what we know at this point? So what we know is that the shooting began at 5.41 p.m. local time here on the third and final day of the Garlic Festival, which is right northern California, just 80 miles south of San Francisco. Mm-hmm. One suspect had some sort of rifle. He was shot and killed shortly after being engaged by an officer, according to the police chief. A second suspect, a possible accomplice, was not apprehended, and police say they are unaware of what role that second person played. So at this point, they are still asking witnesses for information and cell phone video, and they've even set up a hotline for people to call. You were in Gilroy. You went to this reunification center for people. These are tents that essentially are set up after something like this happens, where people can get information about loved ones or anyone missing, right? Yeah, it was a parking lot um, at a nearby college, Gavilan College. And actually, it was set up by the festival organizers initially as a place where the attendees could hop on buses and be shuttled back and forth. So then after the shooting happened, it became that place where families and people attending the festival could find one another, hmm. get some information, but it was very chaotic. Um, there wasn't a lot of information going around. I did speak with a volunteer who's been volunteering at the festival for 18 years, Marcia Struzik. She just said, you know, she felt sick to her stomach. 
I'm sure. So, I mean, as we noted, this is the kind of festival that happens all across America during the summer. Food and it's just a huge celebration at the same time. You know, it's harrowing to go into some kind of uh, really populated event these days. What do we know about the security setup for this? Well, of course, the police chief said he never wanted to have a press conference like this. Um, you know, Gilroy is just south of Silicon Valley, so in recent years it's become a bedroom community for that area. But, of course, it has deep agricultural roots. It's considered the garlic capital of the world. And, you know, the shooting happened at the annual Garlic Festival, which has been going on since 1979. Right. So 100,000 people come here for this three-day celebration, very family-friendly. But, you know, that's not to say there wasn't security. In fact, the chief of police said there was a metal detector Hmm. and bags were inspected as well. All right, Erica Mahoney of member station KAZU covering this story. Thanks. We appreciate it. Thank you. And we are following this story throughout the day. So for updates, check out NPR again and go to npr.org for details. All right. One of the last members of President Trump's original national security team, Director of National Intelligence Dan Coats, is out. The president made that personnel announcement on Twitter, as he often does. He said Dan Coats will be leaving his post next month. The president says he plans to nominate John Ratcliffe, a Republican member of Congress from Texas, and a Trump defender. Here is Ratcliffe on Fox News Sunday criticizing Democrats over Robert Mueller's congressional testimony. They overplayed their hand and they they did it in front of the American people on a national uh, television audience. And it was just a train wreck of a week for the Democrats. And it was a great week for Donald Trump because of that. We've got NPR national security correspondent Greg Myrie in studio this morning. Hi, Greg. Hey, Rachel. Um, Why is this happening now? Well, no specific reason, uh, but the president and and Dan Coats uh, had a pretty rocky relationship uh, throughout his tenure. And I think even more broadly, just this is a president who's gone through um, almost all his original national security members, secretary of state, secretary of defense, national security advisors, homeland security directors. We should should say is an exceptional number of replacements to make, even even though we're now at the end of his first term. It, It is. It is. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned the tension between these two, Coates and Trump. Can you give us some some of the highlights? What were yeah, the moments? I, I think when when Trump and Vladimir Putin, the Russian leader, had a summit last summer uh, at a press conference afterward, Trump questioned whether Russia interfered with the election. And Coates took this highly unusual step of, of issuing a very blunt statement saying the consensus of the intelligence community is that Russia interfered and they're still doing it and we're not going to stop presenting this unvarnished truth. So that really stood out. But just this last January, uh, Coates went on and and testified on on Capitol Hill uh, after the president had said North Korea's nuclear program was no longer a threat and that the Islamic State had been defeated. And Coates contradicted him very publicly. So you didn't hear a lot from Coates. But when you did, it seemed to be shooting down something the president had recently said. The DNI is a tough job, right? You are theoretically, this uh, is a job you're overseeing all the other intelligence agencies. It was created after 9-11. What, what's his legacy, Dan Coates? Right. So, you know, it is this, this sort of funny position where you're overseeing 16 other intelligence agencies. But I think one thing he did do was was shift the emphasis or was part of this community-wide effort. You know, for almost two decades, the focus has been on uh, terror groups, al-Qaeda and, and ISIS. And, and Coates has really stressed the traditional big state 
rivalry. He called them the Big Four, Russia, China, Iran, North Korea, and said the U.S. should be be placing greater uh, concentration on that. The other thing was election security. And in fact, in one of his last acts, he appointed an election security czar, somebody who will oversee or coordinate all the government efforts heading into the 2020 balloting. So Coates was also known as a guy who didn't really seek to politicize intelligence, uh, as is the job of the DNI. Could that change with his successor, though, John Ratcliffe, who's been such a vocal defender of the president? Well, that's that's been the concern. Again, uh, early early days. He still needs to be formally nominated and confirmed. But yes, he's, he's seen as a highly uh, partisan figure in his defense of Trump and his criticism uh, of the Mueller report. Also, he's, he's in his third term. He's only been in Washington about uh, four or five years at this point. Um, He has experience as a prosecutor in terrorism cases, but he has not worked in the intelligence community. So that's uh, to win the trust of the intelligence community uh, will take some time. Okay. So we will look forward to those confirmation hearings. NPR's Greg Myrie. Thanks. Thanks, Rachel. A disgusting rat and rodent infested mess. That is a direct quote. It is what President Trump called the District of Maryland Congressman Elijah Cummings. The district includes a good part of Baltimore, which is a majority black city. The president also said, quote, no human being would want to live there, although many people do want to live there, including city council president Brandon Scott. The president of the United States, the leader of the free world, who is the person who is in the best position of any human being on the planet to help Baltimoreans who need help, instead of doing so, is using his office to beat down an American city. And making lots of news with a tweet or two, his tweets echoed his previous attacks on four Democratic members of Congress of color. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez is in studio. Hi, Franco. Hi. What prompted this this attack by the president? Well, the first tweets came on Saturday after a very unflattering segment on Fox News about Representative Cummings and his district. Should note that Cummings is also chair of the House Oversight Committee, which has been investigating Trump. The committee actually recently uh, sought the personal emails and texts of Ivanka Trump and Jared Kushner. Hmm. Um, so, You know, he's been lashing out in a way with these tweets, as you just played. Democrats are calling the troops racist. So so are many Baltimore residents, as we heard. Um, But Trump has shown very little interest in turning down the temperature. He has tweeted 14 times. And the message very explicitly is focus on your district and not on me. Hmm. So what is Congressman Cummings saying about this? Well, he's saying uh, he tweeted about this. He said in a tweet, Mr. President, I go home to my district daily. Each morning I wake up and I go and fight for my neighbors. He went on to say it's his constitutional duty to conduct oversight of the executive branch. Um, Often when the president tweets something like this, especially attacks on uh, individual lawmakers or cities, it makes things difficult for Republicans. Uh, Have we heard any response from the GOP? We have not heard much yet. Uh, Like when Trump attacked the Fork minority congresswomen uh, just a few weeks ago, the majority of Republican leaders have kept quiet. Even those uh, that have spoken out have been very tempered. Representative Will Hurd, one Republican from Texas, he's the only African-American Republican in the House of Representatives. He wouldn't explicitly condemn Trump's attacks. Uh, he did when, when Trump attacked the four congresswomen. But this time, Hertz said this is different. He just said he wouldn't tweet that way. Mick Mulvaney, Trump's chief of staff, was asked about this on CBS, asked whether he understood why people perceive the president's comments as racist. I understand why, but that doesn't mean that it's racist. 
The president is pushing back against what he sees as wrong. It's how he's done in the past, and he'll continue to do it in the future. What does it say about how the president sees his path to victory in 2020? Well, the president launched a campaign that was based in part on racial divisions and stoking tensions by attacking immigrants uh, from Mexico. We have seen this again and again. I'm not going to say it's a master strategy of President Trump, but it is something that he has shown instinct for. NPR White House correspondent Franco Ordonez. Franco, thanks. Thanks so much. And that is up first for this Monday, July 29th. I'm Rachel Martin. And I'm Steve Inskeep. Join us here tomorrow. Subscribe to us wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts. And we appreciate that you listen to Up First. You can also find more in-depth coverage of the stories that we talked about today and so much more on NPR's Morning Edition. This is a radio show that Steve hosts with me and Noel King and David Green. You can find Morning Edition and your NPR station at stations.npr.org. It has already been an eventful summer in politics. Yeah, between the 2020 debates and the president's battle over immigration, there's a lot going on. And when there's news you need to know about, the NPR Politics Podcast is there to tell you what happened. Not to mention, we're hitting the road so you can meet all of the 2020 contenders. Oh, NPR is going to drive me completely crazy. (laughs) The NPR Politics Podcast. Subscribe! Support for this podcast and the following message come from FrameBridge. They make custom framing easy and affordable. Frame your art and photos at framebridge.com or visit their new stores located on 14th Street and Bethesda Row. Get 15% off your first FrameBridge order with code NPR.